I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to episode two of 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Awards in release order and see why this film is so highly regarded. This time around, we are looking at The Broadway Melody. This is a film that was released on June 6, 1929. It was directed by Harry Beaumont, written by Edmund Goulding as the person with story credit, Sarah Y. Mason has continuity credit here, and Norman Houston and James Gleason that get the dialogue credit. Now, Earl Baldwin is often uncredited because he did titles for the silent version. This was early enough in the talkie era that not all theaters that they wanted to show this in could actually play the talking pictures, so they sometimes had the intertitles for the silent film studios as well. Which, spoiler alert, I don't think would serve this movie terribly well. Anyway, joining me again is Mr. Trey Hooks. Welcome back, Trey. Thanks, Blaine. Good to be back. So, the Broadway melody. A quick synopsis. A couple of young women who are initially referred to as cousins, and then sometimes referred to as sisters. It sounds like they are cousins, but they have what they call a sister act. Have made their way to L.A. They're trying to break into the movie business. And Eddie Kearns is, you know, Hank Mahoney. Hank being one of the women. Eddie Kearns is Hank Mahoney's sweetheart, and, you know, they're talking marriage. He's got a chance to crack them into the business. The last time he saw Hank's cousin Queenie, she was much younger. And, you know, to if you believe what is said by every male character in this film, Queenie grew up real nice. So we get something of a love triangle. As it turns out, Queenie has had a thing for Eddie for a while, and now that she's grown up, Eddie's starting to have a thing for Queenie. So the question is, will the sister act survive that? What's going to happen with this love triangle, and how's the relationship going to play out? So that's the basic premise. That's not a terribly innovative premise. I, I'm going to go on a limb here and say that one of the reasons this was so recognized in 1929 and what set it apart from the competition is that this is generally credited as the birth of the movie musical. These are musical people performing, so we have a number of elaborate song and dance numbers designed for the stage. They're essentially vaudeville acts, but they're all filmed, so we see these elaborate song and dance numbers like you'd see on vaudeville just brought to the movie screen. Well, it's worth noting that's what a lot of early talking cinema was. <laughs> they would adapt plays and vaudeville acts and take them to the silver screen. That was especially true for a lot of the earlier Marx Brothers films. Yes. Yeah, because they were essentially vaudeville performers who were hired to film so that they could reach more of the audience. It's the, the days of the touring act were starting to peter out. You still get a little bit of that, but it's more the off-Broadway production now rather than the Broadway stage. It's not nearly as common 
as it used to be. That's one aspect of entertainment that movies have effectively supplanted, was the touring vaudeville act. But yeah, even if you go back to the Edison short films, way back then, it, at that point in film studios, quite a number of those were, you know, brief vaudeville acts, like Annabelle's Serpentine Dance. Mm-hmm. It was one of the more popular ones. And it's about 45 seconds of what you'd see on vaudeville. That was a lot of them. The Academy Awards started in the late 1920s. Films started in the late 1800s. But early on, they were primarily moving postcards. You know, sometimes nature shots, sometimes just, you know, President McKinley walking through the garden. A number of things like that. It wasn't until the, really the turn of the century. It was actually the year 1900 is when we saw the first story structure in film, in a film by the Lumiere brothers. La Rousseur, La Rousse, or The Sprinkler Sprinkled. And then set started in 1902 with A Trip to the Moon by Georges Méliès. And then Thomas Edison built the Black Maria, which was effectively the first movie studio. Instead of going and shooting on location, or building sets for just one movie, he built the first sort of studio that could be used to film multiple things, and it was essentially a big black box so they could film whatever was going on with a plain black background. And you could start cranking things out. So, yeah, some people say Edison invented the movies, which is, it's not true, but he certainly invented the modern Hollywood studio system. So the Broadway Melody came out, as we said, in 1929. It won Best Picture. This was a year when the two categories we had in the previous year were merged into a single Best Picture to recognize that production and artistic combination. Which I see. It's like, you know, why settle for one or the other if we can encourage people to produce both? So this beat out Alibi, The Hollywood Review of 1929, In Old Arizona, and The Patriot for this award. Uh, for the Best Actor, you know, the winner was Warner Baxter for In Old Arizona. This was not nominated in any category. Bessie Love as Hank was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role, but she lost to Mary Pickford in Coquette. Harry Beaumont was nominated for Best Director, but he lost to Frank Lloyd, who did The Divine Lady. was not nominated for Best Writing. There were 11 nominees for Best Writing in that year. Hans Crayley won for The Patriot. It was not nominated for Cinematography. That award went to White Shadows in the South Seas. Nor was it nominated for Best Art Direction. That went to The Bridge of San Luis Rey's Cedric Gibbons. So really, two nominations and one win for this film. And this I can see. I mean, Bessie Love as Hank actually did quite a good job. She was the best thing in this film. Yeah, I I would agree. She is the standout. The rest of it, I mean, as we said, it really is the birth of the formal movie musical in Hollywood. So it's always going to stand out in history to some degree for that. Watching it now, because the genre has been improved so much and so dramatically since then, unless you're watching all the movies you've ever seen in chronological order of release, I don't see this really standing out for anything but Bessie Love's performance. I I would agree. I want to say nice things about the film, um, but 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 I would I would agree. I haven't seen other uh, any of the other nominees but i've seen some other films from this era such as 
uh, or even from this year, Hallelujah, as an example from King Vidor. And that I would have put forward as a Best Picture nominee instead of this Mm -hmm. film. I think it also has a certain cachet because it's from MGM, which became the king of the musical. Yeah. I'm sure there's that. And some of that might have been because, you know, MGM started with this. It did well for them, so they kept doing more of the same. Uh, As far as IMDb users are concerned, the Broadway Melody actually came out 10th in this year. And as it worked out, I mean, when I did the, the IMDb rankings, I asked the IMDb to rank everything that came out in 1929 that's had at least 1,000 votes mm-hmm. by the IMDb users in order from highest to lowest ranking. Hallelujah comes in in ninth place, which beats the Broadway Melody by quite a bit. Broadway Melody's average rating is 6.3 out of 10 compared to Hallelujah's 7. More tellingly, Broadway Melody is 10th under search criteria that only reduce or only produce 10 results. So of those that qualify, this is bottom of the barrel. Buster Keaton's Spite Marriage is number eight. And I haven't gotten around to that one yet, but I have yet to see the Buster Keaton film I wouldn't prefer. We've got Coquette, The Coconuts, with the Marx Brothers, is number six. We've got Applause, The Love Parade, The Hollywood Review of 1929 came in at 7.4 out of 10, and that was also nominated this year. And then we have The Trespasser and Queen Kelly. I think it's because, you know, similar to what you said, other than Bessie Page's performance, to modern audience, there's not much here. It's a story that at this point has often been told, and even in the silent era, silent era had often been told. The music numbers are okay, but the sound technology isn't quite to the level that it needs to be for them to really pop. Yeah, and even then, I am honestly kind of surprised that Harry Beaumont was nominated for directing unless it was sort of basking in the glory of Bessie Lowell's performance where he's getting the credit not for the technical end, but for the performances he drew out of his cast. Mm -hmm. Because on a technical level, there are a number of flaws. He was trying to do deep focus in a few scenes, you know, so we got things in the foreground and the background. Well, he, I shouldn't say he was trying to do deep focus. He did scenes that should have been done in the deep focus that would later be developed for Citizen Kane. He just had scenes where there's stuff going in the foreground, midground, and background, and just kind of had the cameraman focus on where most of the action takes place. So big chunks of it are out of focus. Well, and I was thinking of, it, if you watch Singing in the Rain, which is about the transition of the talkies, mm-hmm. they do a really good job of fictionalizing a lot of the problems they had capturing sound. And you can yeah. hear some of that here. The opening scene in Zanfield's offices, I could barely hear the dialogue because of all of the background noise overshadowing it. Yeah, they hadn't really had figured out sound mixing yet. Now, some of that was the technology. Today, it's easy to adjust right. the level of audio because the technology we have, there it's new. I mean, it, in some ways, complaining about the technical lens on the sound and some of the technical aspects of this film, it's like complaining about the Model T because it can't go from zero to 60 miles an hour in under 10 seconds. Like, <laughs> right. You, there's got to be some understanding, which means you may not age well, 
But if you look at it in the context of the time, you see some of it. But there's others. I mean, there's even a moment where, you know, the lead actor refers to the character of Hank as Bessie on his way out the door. You know, things where they easily do a second take with the dailies now. But I think this era of filmmaking probably predates dailies. Right. That's probably the kind of thing they wouldn't notice till it was all said and done. Another actor that I think will be worth watching or looking for as the show progresses is Eddie Kane as Zanfield. Not to be confused with the character Eddie Kearns in, in the film. I did a... Mm-hmm. I was looking at everyone's filmography to kind of track what I may or may not have seen them in before. And I don't know what roles he plays in some of the future features, but uh, he will pop up again in both It Happened One Night and You Can't Take It With You. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are some people here who are quite good. And as you said, this this was part of when MGM was first building into the giant it was. Metro Goldwyn Mayer, which was created by Sam Goldwyn and Louis B. Mayer, was a dynamo for years. It was the top studio. And this was an era when they had people under contract. So it's not like today where we're making this movie, let's cast someone for this movie, and then they're done. And they work for any studio. If you were under contract for MGM, if they were happy with you, you were working nonstop, and they would assign you a role in a movie without an audition. And when that movie was done, they'd say, well, here's what we have starting next week. You're in that, playing this character now. If they weren't happy with you, well, then they'd have something for you just around the corner that never actually came. So the contract prevented you from working for someone else, but they weren't actually using you. And that's really what MGM did under Louis B. Mayer. He used people a lot. Charade was not a Best Picture winner, but I will recommend watching it. Just know that the funeral scene at the start of Charade was inspired by Louis B. Mayer's funeral. (laughs) I'll have to watch that again. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it's, Louis B. Mayer's funeral had more guests, but they were there for the same reasons. Let's make sure this guy is really dead. So that's the, the kind of thing we have here. And just as some indication of the level of politics that were involved with MGM and those studios, the, you know, the, the romantic appeal for Queenie here, there's a very well-to-do man who's basically trying to buy her affections and, you know, it doesn't go over well with Eddie or Hank for different reasons. Hank thinks that the man's just, you know, shallow and he's only out after things for purely physical reasons, whereas Eddie's actually jealous because he wants Queenie for himself. That character is Jacques Warriner. <laughs> right. So just a hair's breadth away from the name Jack Warner, who was one of the founding members of Warner Brothers. I don't remember if he was one of the two brothers or if he was the cousin, but he was one of the three that started it. They just called it all Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers and cousin didn't sound as good. Well, and it was a more flattering portrayal, but Zanfield and Zigfield. Yeah. Yeah, they basically were able to, you know, take people who were actual people and put caricatures of them in these films. And Louis B. Mayer made sure that Kenneth Thompson's turn as Jacques Warner would reflect negatively on the man who founded the competition. Although, by all accounts I've ever run across, 
Jack Warner was not a saint, but he was a significantly better human being than Louis B. Mayer was. <laughs> right, right. What did you think about the angle or, or the plot elements about how Queenie was going about building her career? I, I think it was interesting because this, this is a love story that truly is about love, romantic, and familial. So Queenie's career was being built by basically giving Jack Warner what he wanted. And we ultimately learn the reason that she's doing that. You know, we know right from the start that Eddie's interested in her. What we don't realize until we're away into the film is that the interest is mutual, but she's trying to avoid becoming involved with Eddie because she doesn't want to hurt Hank. And she's really doing it to protect her. So when Jack Warner comes up as a man of good utility to her, you know, so he seems like a decent guy, he's nice enough, he could provide for her, he can help her get her career started, and he seems generally interested in her. She tries to make it work with him. And she seems to generally hope that she can fall in love with this guy so that it's not going to be an issue with her and Hank and Eddie. So this, I could see a lot of people would, you know, view her as someone who's sleeping her way to the top, which is not something I'd advocate. Here, it doesn't feel to me like she's trying to use Jack Warner. She's taking him up on what he's offering and genuinely wants it to work. It's just not, but she doesn't want to give up because then she's afraid she'll mess things up for her cousin. And she loves her cousin enough. She would rather live unhappily with Jock than, you know, live happily and mess things up for Hank. Well, and there, there is a good interchange between Queenie and Xanfield. It's their rehearsal scene. And <laughs> Hank's temper ruins the rehearsal. And it's <laughs> Xanfield decides to pick them up on the strength of Queenie's looks. And Queenie convinces Xanfield to allow her to portray it that it was their talent and Hank's business acumen <laughs> that got them the job. Oh, yeah. And in fact, Zanfield didn't want Hank at all. Right. He just wanted Queenie for her looks. And she wasn't just twisting it as the bull. She's like, okay, if you want me, you're going to have to bring Hank too. And this is the way we're going to have to play it. So there's a lot of loyalty there. And it goes both ways. When Hank eventually does realize what's going on and that Queenie and Eddie are interested in each other, she destroys her chance at happiness and rejects Eddie, claiming that she was just using him the whole time to essentially give Eddie and Queenie permission to be happy together. And then she goes off on her own, even though, as the audience, you know, we should see that she's devastated if that particular moment was in focus. But again, it's, it's her performance, and you can see the moment of realization on Bessie Love's face. She was one of the first actors of the era who seemed to recognize the difference between stage and theater acting. On the traditional stage, the physicality is much more exaggerated so that the people in the back can see it. And it took a while for people to recognize, no, you've got to tone it down for the camera because it's like the audience is standing between you and the front row. They're right there. You see it in her eyes. And she doesn't play to an invisible, uh, like you just said, she's not playing to an invisible audience. She has this glance 
downward where you can tell she's thinking, what do I do in this moment? Whereas other actresses of the time, the eyes would go wide, their mouth would open in shock, they'd look at, you know, they'd stare straight into mm-hmm. the camera and, and overplay it. <laughs> it's like the people in the era didn't realize that the audience can follow your eyes. So they're still using the body actions for the stage. And as you said, Bessie, she gets it. And she's one of the earliest examples of someone who gets it. Where she's like, no, from that distance, the camera will see everything on my face. So I can just act with my face. And she does that more than once. Although I think that is the most striking example. Is that that little look where she's like, oh, okay. That's what they want. Okay, you know what? If it makes them happy, I will make the sacrifice. And that's what she does. And she finally puts it all together. So this, yeah. It, at this point, I'm actually curious to see Coquette with Mary Pickford solely because I would like to see the performance that beat Bessie Love. Because having seen this now and looking at the nominations and seeing the film, that Bessie Love, I think, is the Oscar-worthy aspect of this film. I'm, if I were to make the votes today based on what else came out from this year, I would not have chosen this as best picture. Well, there are the legends is the wrong word, but there are all the common theories as to why the Academy over the year nominates performances and films. And I have not seen Coquette. I I agree with you. I think it would be something interesting uh, to see because you do have what to today's audiences, might be the best-known actress of the silent screen in a talking film. But at that point, it could also be the Academy recognizing someone who by then has a 10-, 15-year mm-hmm. body of work. Yeah, sometimes that happens. You get, you know, almost the Lifetime Achievement Awards. Right. I mean, there will be some Alec Guinness films coming up on this podcast. Mm-hmm we will understand why he's an Oscar-worthy performer. I will not understand why his role as Obi-Wan Kenobi earned him a nomination. I mean, on, on the one hand, I can't imagine anyone doing better with that script. On the other hand, there is no way that that's a role that really stands out as you know the best supporting actor of the year. Sometimes it feels like you get actors with these huge careers and people look at it and go, Wait, they haven't won any yet? Oh, exactly. damn, we got to fix that. Here you go. You'll we'll, we'll give it for this one. So, to be fair to Mary Pickford, I haven't I haven't seen Coquette yet either, so it could be completely well deserved, but mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I won't I won't say she didn't deserve that award not having seen the film. I will say she's got a high bar to clear. Yeah. Yeah. There are some good supporting character roles. I, I I thought the stuttering agent slash uncle was mm-hmm. amusing. Um, it's an unfortunate um, stereotype today, but the effeminate costume designer for the stage show lightened the proceedings nicely. So, yeah, it is true. And I one of the things I particularly liked about the stuttering uncle is that he wasn't mocked for his stutter. No. Right. Sometimes people would, would, would chuckle, but they would never do it to his face. They, they didn't cut him down. They understood it. They gave him time, and they understood, you know, sometimes people who have that, the stammer, the stutter, steep stop, 
speech stoppage, whatever you want to call it, they've got little tricks and cues that they use to help themselves get back on track. His is to whistle. And there's the odd time when he's having a hard time getting something else, or something out, and someone else in the room just gives a quick whistle to help him get on track and do that cue. It, yeah, I think that was, it was good in the scenes, it provided entertainment, and it was handled with respect, which is not something that you can expect from characters with social quirks in the 1920s. Right. He was not a buffoon character. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the other nice thing. Just because he had a speech stoppage, that does not mean he was treated as being unintelligent. So, yeah, it was respectful all the way around. How were you first introduced to this film? I backslid to it. There's a series of big Broadway films. I think eventually the title becomes Big Broadway Melody. And films of this type were when radio stars would normally get introduced to the genre. Your Jack Benny's, George Burns, Bob Hope's, etc. So things like Big Broadway Melody of, you know, 1930 or The Gold Diggers or the big radio broadcast, mm-hmm. I tend to gravitate to those. I first saw this probably six years ago when I was doing a watch-through of films of that nature. The title was dissimilar enough that it didn't occur to me that this was the first one, so then I went back and watched this as well. Okay. Um, for me, in this case, I kind of bought it by accident and then watched it for this podcast. A few years ago, back when movies on DVD, you know, a single bare-bones DVD release, no bonus features, you know, back in the day when interactive menus were prominently listed as bonus features. <laughs> right. And some DVDs, you would put them after the movie, it just kind of autoplayed as soon as you put the disc in. I was collecting things. so movies in Canadian dollars were like 35 to $40 if they had any bonus features other than interactive movies. That includes anamorphic widescreen. That would bump you into like the 35 to $40 range. And Amazon had this deal for Warner Brothers Films. It was not cheap. They sent me a... Well, I shouldn't say it was not cheap. I bought it because it was per picture a very good deal. I ended up paying $14 a movie for a creative of about 250 movies. Wow. And they had the list on there, but some of the products changed because they ran out of stock or whatever. It was just Warner Brothers bundling a whole bunch of their stuff. So ordered this crate, went through it, and, you know, called up my mom and she picked up some of the ones that she was interested in, wasn't interested, or, you know, one of us had duplicates of or whatnot, split the cost. So... This would have been around like 2002, 2003. So it was, I'd only started collecting DVDs in 1999. Actually with Ghostbusters 1 and 2 and (laughs) Tomorrow Never Dies. But I bought my first DVD player to watch Ghostbusters on DVD. As opposed to so many people who bought it for The Matrix later that year. And yeah, my mom had just been collecting for about a year. So it was, at the time, it seemed like a pretty cost-effective way to get the collection started. So this was just in that bunch. So it's been sitting on one shelf or another for a little over a decade because it was just, you know, I I bought the box for more like, you know, Blackboard Jungle and Gaslight. Right. And a lot of those because these were, 
mean, at the time, it was close to every library title Warner Brothers had released because it was early enough in the DVD era. You know, that unless it was part of the Stanley Kubrick collection or something like that, you know, any of their run-of-the-mill titles, Singing in the Rain being one of them, which you've already mentioned, they were in that box. So, yeah, this was one of them, and I just finally got around to watching it, which I certainly don't regret. But, yeah, in retrospect, I just, I think it was a time when people wanted those musicals, and, you know, the Broadway melodies were apparently rather famous. It was called the Broadway Melody because that's, that's what it was. You'd go to Broadway for the Broadway Melody of the Year, and it was just one set piece after another, different songs. So it wasn't really a play with one coherent narrative. It was a variety show on Broadway. And this gave audiences the opportunity to see one of those without having to travel to Broadway. Right? You could see it from anywhere in the country when it showed up in your town. So I, I think that that's a big part of what drove it forward, as well as the fact that from the beginning, people could influence voters because people have always been able to influence voters as part of the voting process. Right. right? That's why people campaign for political offices. And that's why they can succeed by being in your face and not really saying anything intelligible or coherent or actionable is because the way the psychology works, that has been an influence on Academy voters for a while. And I suspect that Louis B. Mayer had a big push on the Academy voters to try and get his product to the top of the list. And this was the one he pushed that year. It is interesting because there are. You know, as you mentioned, when we were looking at uh, the IMDb list, there are a couple of other contenders that would fit that same profile, possibly. You know, the Hollywood Review of 1929 and Coconuts, though not necessarily a Broadway melody, were both off-Broadway type fare that introduced you know, stage musical numbers. So they were of a type. They were. And it's the Hollywood Review of 1929 was also an MGM product. So I'm not exactly sure why this edged it out, aside from, I mean, I haven't seen Hollywood Review, but it does seem like it is just the review, so it's not necessarily a coherent narrative from start to finish. And that may be the tipping point in this one, is that we do have a narrative, and... And unlike last month's love story in Sunrise, or even Wings for that matter, I mean, we, we talked about Sunrise and Wings last month, obviously. Sunrise was a very unhealthy relationship. Uh, Wings was just more undefined than unhealthy. I would say it, both Eddie and Hank's and then later Eddie and Queenie's relationship was probably more healthy than, I, I, I think it was, I'm not going to remember the character names now, but Clara Bow's relationship, for example, and Wings, especially during mm -hmm. the period when it was one-sided. Yeah. Yeah, this is, it's certainly a healthier, they're both healthier relationships than that. Because it's clear that Hank and Eddie were happy together until Eddie saw Queenie. And that, if anything, if there's any sort of morals and messages that we're not happy, or at least that I'm not happy with in this one, it's that, you know, the fact that, you know, the men immediately falling for Queenie, it's written as though looks are everything. Mm -hmm. Right. He, he goes from being head over heels for Hank to head over heels for Queenie in, what, about 15 or 20 minutes? 
you know, it's like he's talking urge with Hank and then Queenie walks in the room and, and it's Hank who? So if anything, that that's the only part that I would really object to, but just how they deal with that. Right, especially how Hank and Queenie deal with it, where Queenie is trying to keep herself out of reach of the t- of the two of them, especially Eddie, so that she doesn't hurt Hank. Hank's sacrifice to make Queenie and Eddie happy. This is one that, you know, last time I talked about, you know, don't watch either of these with the young kids until they're ready for this stage. This is one where, you know, as long as they understand basically what love stories are, like, by the time that they're, I would say, a child is old enough to watch a 90-minute black-and-white movie with the technical gaffes this one has, right? If they're willing to sit through this movie, they're ready for this movie. Oh, I, I would agree. And it even, even for Hank, there's an optimistic note at the end. You know, I, I will be back here, and I will be back here on the merits of my talent and not my cousin's good luck. Yeah, and I also find it interesting who her partner is, because at the end, Hank has a new <laughs> yes. partner for her vaudeville act, and it's the one who initially tried to sabotage their act earlier in the film. So they've gotten over that, and they're they're moving forward. It's bygones, let bygones be bygones and move on. So, yeah, you can question Eddie for his immediate flip-flop from Hank to Queenie here, but Hank and Queenie are both positive female role models, I would say. No, I'd agree. All right. You know, so I think, unless you had any closing thoughts, I think that's about all we have to say about Broadway Melody here. So, uh, next month, come back to the podcast for All Quiet on the Western Front, the winner from 1930. Right, and finally, thank you for listening. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.